turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. If you're new with us or visiting family this weekend, we are going through the Gospel of Matthew. We began a few weeks ago, and we finished uh, the genealogy, and we're ready this morning for verses 18 to 25. Now, before I read the text, I need to give you some historical Background that's very critical. Some of you will be familiar with this. Some of you may not be. But it relates to the ancient practice of Jewish weddings and Jewish marriage. And it's essential we understand this before we even read the text or we will be really lost. In ancient Jewish times, 21 centuries ago, the parents arranged the weddings, the marriages of their children. This would happen about the age of, are you ready for this? 12 for the bride and 18 for the groom. Why 18? Well, they wanted the groom to be able to be financially stable. Isn't that that amazing? Financially stable at 18. They would negotiate a contract for the dowry. This was the groom's obligation to the bride's father, the groom and his family. They would pay a sum of money for her, and this would all be negotiated in a contract. That legal contract would then be signed by witnesses, and the couple would be known from that point forward as husband and wife, the 18-year-old and the 12-year-old. And this would begin what's known as a betrothal period. And it lasted about one year. They would live apart from each other during this time. They would likely have no private time together. And it's probably likely they didn't really even know each other. Their gap in age, even if they grew up in the same village, their gap in age would dictate that they would not have hung around together or conversed together or known each other. Why one year betrothal? A couple of reasons. For the man, he had to get his house ready for his wife. That would generally be he would add on a room to his father's existing house, and he would have a year to prepare to do that. And from her side, a year was needed to prove her purity, to prove her faithfulness. Because within a year's time, if she's not faithful and if she's not pure, she is likely to become pregnant, and this would become known. And so the one-year betrothal period was set. At the end of the betrothal, the husband and his friends would proceed to her home, and likely they're living in the same general area, same village. He would proceed to her home, and he would bring her and her wedding party back to his home, where they would have the ceremony, where they would then, in private of course, consummate their marriage, and that would set off a week-long feast with their family and friends. Now, if he happened to die during the betrothal period, she became a widow. If there was infidelity during the betrothal, it's considered adultery. And if she becomes pregnant, the most likely outcome is he is going to divorce her. This was something far beyond our modern-day engagement, obviously. It was a legal binding contract. They were husband and wife, so to end a betrothal required a divorce proceedings. Now, divorce proceedings could go one of two directions. You could either have a public trial that would happen at the city gates before the judges of the city. 
And in this public trial, with the young girl, really in our eyes, the young woman now is pregnant, if the husband wanted to, he could shame her. This is a shame culture. He could disgrace her and publicly humiliate her in this public trial. He could force the issue of her infidelity and her adultery and her disgracing him and his parents and herself and her parents. And if he wanted to be a stickler for the law, he could push this to such an extreme that he could call for her execution by stoning because she has committed a crime and a sin of that nature. That was one option. His other option would be a private divorce. And in a private divorce, he would simply write a writ of divorce, a certificate of divorce, and he would hand it to her in the presence of two or three witnesses. This is referred to in Deuteronomy 24.1. And this would be a somewhat secret, but definitely a private event. Now, go with me to the text of Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly, planned to divorce her secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Pray with me. Father, this is your holy and inspired word about the eternal word made flesh. I pray you'd give me your help and your aid. I pray you'd give the listener ears to hear and a heart to yield and surrender and believe and be in awe. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to remind you as we begin of Matthew's purpose in writing the Gospel of Matthew, if this is your first time with us. His purpose is to present primarily to Jewish Christians Jesus as Savior, King, and Messiah. And he wants to do this first for Israel, his own people, and then for the entire world. That's his primary aim in writing these 28 chapters. And chapter 1 is all about then credentials for this Savior, King, and Messiah. Does he have the right pedigree? Does he have the right resume? Does he have what it takes? 
to accomplish what God had called him and would call him to do. Does Jesus have the right credentials? And that's what chapter 1 is all about. The first part of chapter 1, 17 verses, is a genealogy. He had to have the right legal credentials. He was of the legal line of David through Joseph. And that's what he presents there in 1 to 17. But we come to our text today and he gives us really two more credentials along the way. Building this resume so that you would hear and understand and believe So that you'd be saved and you'd be solid and you'd be still before the sovereign God of the world who brought Jesus into the world. And so Matthew wants to lay out reasons for our faith. Give us reasons to believe in this really an apologetic type of gospel. So he's got the right genealogy. Now he moves into the next credential is this spirit conception. Spirit conception. Conception, And this is really in verses 18 to 23. That's the point here in the stress. This is not a birth narrative at all. Did you notice? There's no mention of Bethlehem here. There's no mention of a manger. There's no mention of the, of the mother of Jesus delivering. This is not a birth narrative. This is a conception narrative. And as such, it's really a commentary for verse 16. I didn't highlight verse 16 over the last couple of weeks. So I want to draw your attention back to it now. Because 18 to 23 is commentary on verse 16. It finishes the thought of verse 16. Look at it there with me, verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary... By whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Verse 16 is the most shocking verse in the genealogy. If you thought Tamar was shocking, if you thought Rahab the harlot was shocking, Bathsheba the adulteress, Ruth the Moabitess, This is the biggest surprise of all in this genealogy. 39 times in a row, Matthew has used an aorist active verb to describe what's going on here. 39 times in a row, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Literally, Abraham begat Isaac. Aorist active verb. Abraham sired Isaac. Abraham fathered Isaac. And so forth. 39 times until he comes down to Joseph. Jacob fathered Joseph. And then number 40 is an aorist passive. Number 40 is by whom Jesus was begotten, was fathered, was born. Joseph, in other words, what he has told us in verse 16, startling, shocking, scandalous. What he has told us so far in verse 16 is Joseph did not beget Jesus. Joseph did not father Jesus. Joseph was merely the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. Joseph is bypassed. Joseph is cut out of the loop. It's not even of them. It's only of her. And this is the biggest surprise of all in this genealogy. Mary is clearly his mother, but Joseph is not his father. So the question is, who is 
Who is his father? Now verse 18 and following answers that question. It's the commentary on that. And, and the only way we can describe it is how Matthew describes it. Spirit conception. Twice he says this. Verse 18. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. The end of verse 20. Of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is an essential credential. So we have the right genealogy now leading to the divine biology, if you will. We have an impeccable legal origin and now a heavenly origin. The timeline, if we pull from the book of Luke, is this. After becoming pregnant, Mary immediately left tiny little Nazareth, their little village. She left and she went to go visit Aunt Elizabeth in Judea. And Aunt Elizabeth is also pregnant herself. Not as miraculously as Mary, of course. But it was pretty astounding because she was way up there in years. This is Elizabeth who would be the mother of John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, right? So Mary shows up and she's a few months ahead of Mary in their pregnancies. Mary will spend her first trimester with Aunt Elizabeth. And then she returns home and she's... 12 or 13 years old and she's now three or four months pregnant and you can see it and as soon as she gets back home to Nazareth the scandalous news breaks (laughs) The, the, the word spreads rapidly and Joseph hears this news confirmed by his family and friends I would guess that there was no conversation between them. I would guess that she had no opportunity to try to explain it. How would she do that anyway? Joseph just hears the news. His wife went away for three months, and now she's home, and she's clearly pregnant. Matthew wants us to know right from the beginning That Joseph wasn't the father. In fact, there is no human father. Now the birth, that word there is actually transliterated. It would be Genesis. Now the origins, now the creation, if you will. Now the beginning of Jesus Christ. Jesus the person was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, before they came together physically, she was discovered, she was found, it was announced that she's with child by none other than God the Holy Spirit. Now the fifth woman in this genealogy. Remember we had four women prior. They were all Gentiles. They were all scandalous. In fact, their sin involved sexual sins. Now it appears that the fifth woman of this genealogy is also involved in sexual sin. But looks can be deceiving. (laughs) This is not Joseph's son. This is God's son. And far from sinning, Mary has conceived by the Holy Spirit. The beginning or the genesis of God taking on flesh was a virginal conception. So pick it up in verse 19. Joseph, her husband, he calls him his husband because that's what he is. He's a righteous man and he's not wanting to disgrace her. He's caught in a conundrum. He's in a bind. And so he plans... To send her away secretly. He knows he must divorce her because she has violated their marriage vows. 
And so he is going to do it as discreetly and as graciously as possible because he doesn't want to disgrace her. And when he is considering this and pondering this and reflecting on this and and tied up in knots over this, I would imagine, behold, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. This is the first of three revelatory, authoritative dreams that God gives to Joseph. The next two will be in chapter 2. This angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Joseph, did you notice, son of David. He's going to remind him of who he is and what line he stands in. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. He's obviously afraid. He's afraid for himself. He's afraid for her. He's afraid for his parents. He's afraid for their, her parents. He's terrified. Do not be afraid. Go ahead. He's saying here, here's your permission. Go ahead and marry. Go ahead and finish this process. Go ahead and have the wedding. Go ahead and bring her into your home. Go ahead and treat her as your wife. For, here's what you need to hear, Joseph. The child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, I'm going to tell you in advance, it will be a boy, and you are going to call his name Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves, or the Lord is salvation, because he himself will save his people from their sins. The angel gets to announce this to Joseph. He will not try to save. He will not hope to save. He will save his people from their sins. Not from the Romans. Not from the oppressing foreign power. But from their sins. And then Matthew says all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And he pulls about three different verses out of Isaiah. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, maybe some Isaiah 8. And this is not really like prophecy and fulfillment. It's more like typology and fulfillment. It's like here's a historical pattern. There was this prophecy given to Isaiah in his day that a young maiden would have a child. And it would be a sign from God that God still cared about Israel. King Ahaz was freaking out because these foreign kings were coming upon Israel. And he didn't know how he was going to survive. And, and he said, ask for a sign. He says, I won't ask for a sign. And, and God says, then I will give you a sign. A maiden will have a child. And before he knows right from wrong, you will be delivered. You'll be cared for. It was a typology. Now it's fulfilled ultimately in Christ. The ultimate sign of all signs that God cares for Israel. That God cares for the world. That all of these Fears that come upon us and threaten us should not because God has intervened. Matthew takes that assortment of typology type statements in Isaiah. He combines them here in verse 23. And he interprets them here in verse 23. And he says, The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. I thought his name was Jesus. I thought his name was the Lord is salvation, correct. And they, those who are saved from their sins, will say he is God with us. He is God in human flesh. They are the ones who are delivered by this Messiah, this Savior, this King. And what an interesting statement this is in chapter 1. God with us. 
bookends for the whole gospel of Matthew because the very last verse of the book is Jesus saying to his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the, of the age. And here he is in chapter 1, God with us. And there we will be out into the end of the age, God with us by his Spirit. David Platt has said about what we're discussing, quote, this is the most extraordinary miracle in the whole Bible and the most profound mystery in the whole universe. We need to hear it again this morning, do we not? The most extraordinary miracle in the whole Bible and the most profound mystery in the entire universe. And yet, has there anything in the history of the world been more diluted than this? I speak of the conception of Jesus. I speak of Christmas. Has there been anything more distracted and more diluted from this most extraordinary miracle than what we experience in 21st century America? Can we just ponder this together again? He had no human father, yet he was fully human. He's God's eternal son who becomes the son of man. How is this possible? This is impossible to man. Let us lay a hand over our mouths. Let us stand in awe. Let us be still. Let us be silent. God became human using only the mother. And why did God go to such extreme efforts? Why did God go to such extreme lengths? Verse 21, let us be comforted. Let us lay a hand over our mouth and let us find comfort for our soul because he will save his people from their sins. He has a defined, definite mission. He will accomplish the mission. He will not fail. He cannot fail. His people will be delivered, will be rescued, will be forgiven, will be given eternal life, will be adopted as children of God, and they will go to heaven when they die because he will save his people from their sins. We don't have a trying Savior. We have an accomplishing Savior. And this was designed from the beginning. He is God with us. And God does not fail. And God can do the impossible. So let us find comfort in this spirit conception. God is intervening. God is on the march. God is moving into man's darkness, man's depravity, man's rebellion. And he will do for himself what he wants through his son. We need to remember this morning that spirit conception is essential. It is essential to a sinless Savior. Our Savior must be sinless when he goes to that cross. He must be sinless both in his nature, in his choices, and in his behavior. He must be spotless Lamb of God. And so he begins with this sinless human nature. And this is essential. He couldn't be our Savior otherwise. He's, he's presenting credentials. And without this, virgin birth, virgin conception really, without this, he has no ability to stand in our place and take our sin upon himself and suffer for us sinlessly and take away our guilt. So I want you to lay a hand over your mouth this morning. And throughout this season, and I want you to find comfort, especially in verse 21, but also, doctrinally speaking, I want you to make this a hill to die on. 
The virgin conception of Christ is a hill to die on, beloved. We ought to suffer the greatest indignity, persecution, and even death for this doctrine. If you deny this, you deny Christ. You mock God's power, you question God's word, and you ascribe Adam's sin to our substitute. That's what's at stake. If you lose this, you lose everything. You lose the gospel, you lose reconciliation, you lose a way to God. This is the only way. And so God did it. He must be then both almighty God and sinless man in one person if we are to have any hope whatsoever. Any hope whatsoever. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him because no one was God in human flesh but him. Of no one else can we say God with us. Of no one else can we say Yahweh is salvation. I'm looking at salvation when I look at Christ. He is my hope. He is my Savior. This is the first or the next credential then that Matthew wants us to absorb and receive and believe. But there's one more in this text. There's one more. We go now from really the divine. We go from the heavenly. We go from the, from the supernatural and the inexplicable to something that is natural and earthly and actually commonplace then and even today. The next credential is human adoption. He had to have spirit conception, but he also had to have human adoption to qualify as our Savior, King, and Messiah. Look at verses 24 and 25. Joseph awoke from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You might read that last line just kind of like, oh, by the way, he called his name Jesus. No, that's what Matthew's getting to. This closes the loop of the chapter. It closes the loop on the genealogy. This is everything. Because naming, listen, naming meant claiming. Joseph must name this child because that is Joseph adopting this child as his own for him to name him is to bring him into his family and this was a public declaration and a public event it signaled to the priest it signaled to the community this is my adopted son you must understand something. Without that last line of verse 25, the previous genealogy means nothing. It means nothing that Joseph was in the line of David if Joseph does not adopt Jesus. Without this adoption, Jesus is not qualified to take the throne of David because he is not the legal son of David. Without this adoption, Jesus is not qualified as Messiah because Messiah had to be a son of David. 
And so for Matthew, for Matthew, Joseph is the human unsung hero of this story. And he hardly ever gets any attention, right? How many people are named Mary, but not very many Josephs are out there. I commend to you the name Joseph. If you have a, if you're with child right now or plan to be, and God gives you a boy, I commend this name to you. He is really the unsung hero. He's Matthew's unsung hero. Matthew doesn't put the spotlight on Mary at all. He never does anywhere in this, even in chapter two. But he does on Joseph. It's pretty amazing. Put yourself in his position then. Let's learn from him a bit this morning. He is 18 years old. Put yourself in his position. His wife is pregnant and he knows one thing for certain. (laughs) He is not the father. So imagine how that felt when he got this news. Imagine how hurt he was. Imagine how confused he was. Imagine how shocked I mean, he's trusting his parents. He's trusting that this is a noble, godly young woman. And he has no access to her. He can't go to her and demand an explanation. And then he has this dream. And in this dream, he is told that it's of the Holy Spirit. What? Wait, what? We read this today and we just read right over like there's no big deal. Big deal. This has never happened before. No one's ever said this before. She's with child by the Holy Spirit. Wait, what did you say? Am I dreaming? Yes, I am dreaming. What did, what did he say? Did I hear that right? How blown away he must have been. Oh, no pressure, 18-year-old Joseph. You know, God speaking now. No pressure, but you're only going to be raising my son, okay? Make sure you get it right. This is an amazing young man. This is a teenager who is mature beyond, beyond his years, godly beyond his years. I want you to learn three lessons this morning from Joseph. Number one comes from verse 19. He strikes that rare balance between being just on the one hand and merciful on the other. I don't know about you, but I struggle with that rare balance. So it's rare. <laughs> I, I think most people do. Most people either lean merciful or they lean justice. But it's really hard to walk that line down the middle. He does it. Look at verse 19. He is a righteous man. That, that doesn't mean he's perfect. That means he follows the law. He's godly. He loves God. He's a saved person. He's a just man. And he wants to do what is right. And what is right in this case is to divorce her. This is what he must do. He doesn't want to, perhaps. He's, he's confused by it all, perhaps. But this is what the law would require of him to do. This is what his community would expect of him to do. This would be the peer pressure of everyone around him. Oh, Joseph, you've got to send her away. And he's, but he's a righteous man, so he's got that tension. But on the other hand, he's not wanting to disgrace her. He's not wanting to humiliate her or shame her. And so he's a merciful man. He's like, I don't know the answer yet. I don't know how this happened yet, but I don't want that for her. I don't want to expose her and ridicule her and make her the shame of the whole community. And so he's making his plans then, verse 9. He's planning. He's, he's considering, I've got to do this secretly. How do I do this? Who are my witnesses? When do I do this? How do I pull this off? He is striking that rare balance between justice 
and mercy. He says, I must do this on the one hand, but I will do it as gently, as kindly, as mercifully as I possibly can. He is a great example to us in that. Second lesson. Number two, even under pressure, even under pressure, he is measured and considerate. Verse 20. But when he had considered this, pondered this, reflected on this, he's wrestling with it. He's thinking about it. He's 18 years old and he doesn't make a rash decision. He's not hasty. He doesn't ready, fire, aim. He is considering this. He's going, man, I thought she was something. Wasn't this true about her character? Everybody said this about her character. But the law says this. She's clearly pregnant. So he's wrestling internally. I'm sure he's praying. I'm sure he's thinking about the Word of God. He's considering all of his options. Under pressure, under hurt, under confusion even. He doesn't lash out and hurt in return. Fears are all over him, but he's not rash. What is he doing? He's buying time. He doesn't know this yet, but he's actually buying time. He's buying time for God to give him more information. How wise is this? Slow down. Don't be rash. Consider your options. Allow God to give you more information to make the decision. And this is exactly what happens. God in his mercy and God in his grace comes to him in a dream and gives him explicit orders an explanation. And that brings us to the third lesson of Joseph. Again, why aren't more people named Joseph? <laughs> Regardless of the cost, he trusts God and he obeys God. Regardless of the cost, he gets these three dreams and in every case, he does not ask one single question. There is no negotiation. There is no conditions being set on his obedience. In every single case of these three dreams, God says, you do this. And the text says he immediately does it. Instant obedience. Only obedience. Full obedience. He trusts and obeys God. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Joseph knew this. There's no hesitation in his obedience. It's instant obedience, but it's not easy obedience. Again, we've got to go back to his sandals, right? We've got to live in his life. What is going to happen? There is going to be small town gossip. There is going to be misunderstanding. There is going to be rejection. There is probably going to be suffering. Eyebrows are going to be raised. Clients are going to be lost. Somebody here sinned. Y'all are covering this up. Everybody's suspicious of them. Everybody's questioning them. In fact, he will violate all custom by obeying God because he's going to shortcut short the one-year betrothal. So about month four, they're going to have the wedding. And she's going to come into his home, which is actually his family's home. 
Because he's trusting God and obeying God, not, not the parameters of man, not the dictates of the culture. But he will wait to consummate because that was part of the instruction. Again, we see that he is both righteous and merciful. He's obeying God's will on waiting to have sex with his wife, and yet he is not waiting to take her as his wife. Because Mary's protection is more important than his reputation. And he fears God more than he fears man. And so he makes her his wife. Verse 24, he took Mary as his wife. And he kept her a virgin until, not forever, just until, until she gave birth to a son. And then he called his name Jesus. I would submit to you this morning that his trusting obedience is just as great as Mary's. It absolutely is. And Luke highlights Mary. And Matthew highlights Joseph. These are godly teenagers trusting and obeying what God had called them to do. About six months and one long road trip later, she's screaming in pain and gives birth to a screaming, crying baby boy. It's oh holy night, but it is not silent night. (laughs) She's screaming, he's crying, animals are doing whatever. And then on the eighth day, they make a very short walk from Bethlehem to the temple in Jerusalem. And the baby boy will cry out in agony as he is circumcised. The officiating priest will ask of these two young parents, what is his name? Mary looks to Joseph. Joseph looks to the priest and says, his name is Jesus. His name is Yahweh saves. Yeshua. I ask you this morning, have you called his name Jesus? Have you called him the Lord is salvation? He is the Lord, he is man, and he is my Savior. Have you joined Joseph and Mary and called this God-man Savior of your soul? You will if you believe that he is God with us. If you believe the ancient typologies and the ancient patterns of history that God began to reveal in the Old Testament and the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, if you believe that he is fully God and fully man in one person, then you will call him your Savior. If you do not believe that he is God with us, then you will stand apart from him, both now and forever. No, he is God with us. And who says that? Those who are saved from their sins. He is God come down to save us. God come here to rescue us. That's what you will say about him if he has delivered you from your sin. Let's pray. 
Father, may it be this morning that someone here would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Paul promised this in Romans 10, that whoever, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why is that? Because to call on the name of the Lord is to consider him. Yahweh is salvation. Father, we pray that you do your work in this place, that you would convict the hopeless and lost person here this morning, the person who doesn't know yet that you love them. They're seeking love. They're seeking fulfillment. They're seeking happiness. And they do not know yet that you are love and you are happiness and you are fulfillment. We pray today that you would come and introduce this morning a sinner to your son, Jesus. May they come to know him and love him and serve him. We pray in his name. Amen.